Boys and girls, it's another. It's time for another exciting episode of the Development Hell Podcast. Welcome to episode number twenty-nine, where we're freebasing it Richard Pryor style tonight. Oh, I hope we don't catch on fire. <laughs> I wonder how many I'm, people who are listening actually know actually know who Richard Pryor is and know what happened to the guy. Yeah. So, I, if I remember the story, he was he did something where he was. Freebasing uh, cocaine, for, yeah, which is and kind of the some, precursor to crack. Yeah, and he somehow, like, it caught on fire, and I'm not sure how exactly, but, like, fire started coming out of his neck. Yeah, yeah. he basically he spilled it all over himself and spilled flaming cocaine on himself, basically. Yeah, so that was not good. Yeah, so he burned himself really badly. And if I remember correctly, I'm trying to think now, because I read some story that he was going to he was going to appear – on either some TV show or, or some movie, and because he burned himself doing the freebasing thing, that whole opportunity dropped away and disappeared. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. That surprise we should look that up. But anyway, yeah, developers uh, taking cocaine and setting themselves uh, on fire seems like a very um, – yeah, Flaming Cocaine is a good band name. That's my emo. That's my uh, but that's my Richard Pryor tribute band, Flaming Cocaine. Yep. He deserves a tribute band. If, if Like seriously, if somebody's listening to this and – is not familiar with the comedy of Richard Pryor. They need to catch. Dude up. is awesome. He was think of like um, Eddie Murphy in his prime, and Richard Pryor had a prime that was like uh, twenty years long. Yeah, I see. I think I always thought Pryor was a lot more intelligent than Eddie Murphy's humor. Um, I like always thought he was a lot funnier um, and like smarter. Like sometimes Eddie Murphy would. It seemed like he kind of would fall back on like you know. G- jokes about gays or kind of bathroom humor stuff and things like that. And I never, I don't know, uh, Richard Pryor never did that for me. I always felt Richard Pryor was more of a, a little bit more of a thinking man. Kind. I of. love Richard Pryor. Yeah, he's amazing. So, yeah. Rooster's Millions is a very underrated movie. Yes. Oh, that's a fabulous movie. That is yeah. awesome. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, we made it to episode 29. And before we go any further, let's thank our awesome sponsor for this episode, Paul Reinheimer. Happy birthday, Paul. It's his birthday today. Did you know that, It is Ed? Paul Reinheimer's birthday. And we should all, if you go on uh, Twitter or whatever, please uh, at, at P. P. Reinheimer, P. Reinheimer and say happy birthday. Say happy birthday. So thank you so much to uh, Wonder Network for, for uh, providing us with the um, streaming uh, that we always do on every single episode. Mm-hmm. Except for the last one. Except, well, except for the last one because that was just a spur of the moment when I was in Buffalo and we decided right. just to just to roll with it, baby. Whoa. So, um, so tonight we uh, it's a, a very different idea. We're just going to do. We were going to do some Q and A. Uh, we asked a bunch of people to come into IRC. Um, if you're listening to this live, come into Freenode into Dev Hell and you can ask us some questions. But before we get into that, just before we start recording for the show, Ed and I were talking about um, editors. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, because Ed was has, was saying he had a whole bunch of stuff open on his desktop and he wanted to close it down so he couldn't get distracted. So, um, so I asked Ed what he was using and he says he's been using Sublime Text. Now it's well known that I'm a big Vim guy, but I actually I do really like Sublime Text. But the one hurdle that I have to overcome if I want to use Sublime Text all the time is that I have to use it for work. And the right. problem with work is that all the VMs that I have to work on are remote. They're not on my desktop. So right. I end up having to edit files remotely. And in my 14, 15 plus years of being a coder, I have never found 
a workflow involving editing of remote files that I liked. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so, which is, so you end up kind of in a trap. If I, I'm working at a place where I have to do lots of editing of files on remote servers. Vim is installed on every VM. I can easily copy, um, my, um, VimRC file and my Vim directory with all the plugins that I use to whatever machine I need to use. And I pretty much get the same experience, um, when I'm SSH'd. And plus I use Tmux as well. So when I'm connected, to a remote server. I even go back into existing Vim sessions that I left running like a week ago and I pop back into them. Um, so like, so I know that at uh, the greatest startup ever, you guys right. uh, use virtual machines or using vagrant stuff. And you, oh. so you probably do all your editing um, locally. Is that right? Yeah. The VM is, is local to us. So what we do is um, the, the, our, our code bases are actually um, mounted. They're actually on the host machine, uh, the host machine's file system, and then mounted um, via NFS by the VM. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's it makes Git stuff faster. Like it makes our Git operations faster if we can do them. So, so if I'm doing like source control stuff, I uh, have a shell open for my OSX machine on my laptop and uh, I do my Git stuff in there. And then, but then if I have to do things like restart the server, look at server logs or things like that, switch a window over to, you know, I've SSH into the VM and check stuff there. That's where my logs are. I watch logs and stuff like that. So the VM's doing the serving, but it's actually, it's actually, like I said, NFS mounting off the, uh, off the host machines, uh, file system. And so it's, it's definitely faster to do that because that way, like our editing and the source control stuff is all because, and because you want more speed for that, you don't have to go through the VM to do that. Right. Even though it will be a lot faster than say the latency you get, you know, if the machine is off someplace else in a server room or whatever, it still would be a lot. It's still, you know, sometimes significantly slower than, um, if you're editing directly on the on the file system of your host machine, yeah, so. and it's even worse too for me um, in terms of getting away from using Vim because um, Cinecore invested a lot of time in building support tools that are all command line driven. Oh, yeah. So we have our own extensions for Git that we created that allow us to apply um, Git commands to multiple repos because most of our apps are actually consist of. Um, you know, you, you'll end up doing work in three or four separate Git repos and then it all gets deployed somewhere by pulling out the, um, we store the shahs. We call them Gitzelplifs. <laughs> I, I know it's, it comes from Mitzelplik or something. It's yeah, like Mitzelplik. Yeah. It's the enemy of Superman. Oh, well, it was way before the animated Superman, but, uh. No, the enemy of Superman. Well, the, oh, I thought you said the animated Superman. Yeah, yes, I'm sorry. On. Sorry, bro. Clown Jeez. move. I get it. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> So they have all these tools like, yeah, we have this git bulk extension. So we can type git bulk and then it'll apply it to every repo that it can find um, from the directory where you're in. So you can, And we also have command line switches so you can say, okay, I want to apply these commands to the following three repos. So it's so they've invested a lot of time in setting all those things up. So really to do anything involving your workflow of like starting to work on a ticket and committing things and pushing code where it needs to go, <clears throat> you end up 
needing to be on the server anyway. So in, yeah, in, I can dig that. in many ways, I'm kind of like, eh, I got to use Vim anyway. Um, I got to, I got to be SSH'd into a server anyway. So Vim offers me the um, path of least resistance, but I really, I, but yeah. I, don't get me wrong. I really like sublime text. Uh, I think it's a good editor. It reminds me of, of a lot of TextMate, and I'm sure that's no accident. Uh, yeah, it's, and in fact, it is, uh, it's kind of like if TextMate hadn't just stopped at 1.5, <laughs> right? Um, well, there is a TextMate too that's open source, but you almost hey, never hear anything about that. And also, yeah. I'm assuming that, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like the person who was working on TextMate got stuck with wanting to do every, wanting to do TextMate 2 perfectly, and in the process of trying to do it perfectly, never bothered doing anything. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a shame, but, I mean, he can do his thing whatever he wants. You know, he wanted to do something else, and it's his prerogative, or wanted to do things a certain way. It's his prerogative, obviously. I I think that, um, you know, I used TextMate for a long time, and, yeah, Sublime Text is pretty similar, but it just kind of builds on top of a lot of the stuff that TextMate did well and then does continues to improve on that and add new features and also just do other stuff better. Um, probably the things that there's a few kind of rough edges with sublime text. Like I think the way it presents things like it's real primitive, the way like it's search is much, much faster. If you ever use text mate, sublime text to search is extremely fast. Um, like to, you know, to grab across your project or things like that. Super fast, but it is like the way it presents data like that back to you is kind of chintzy. Like it just, it just makes a, basically it just makes a new text document and pastes the results into it. Right. And I guess part of that might be because it's a cross platform app. I mean, it runs on Linux and windows and OS X and you know, maybe that's part of it. Uh, I don't know, but there's little things like that where you kind of, it, you know, the, like the way that say TextMate displayed stuff was nicer, but it could rely on to display things the way OSX does. So, um, but yeah, I, I think for me, what I find is the editing features, particularly like, um, being able to, uh, do batch editing and set multiple cursors at different positions and stuff like that. I can just do some things way faster. Like if I'm refactoring stuff within a file, like just changing file names or things like that, it's just, it's so fast to do things for duping text. And then Jesus dropped my remote. Um, duping text, uh, like selecting all of the instances of a phrase and then being able to overwrite all of them by just typing once, um, you know, things like that. Like if you just go to the, it kind of shows it off if you just go to sublimetext.com and uh, they have like a little, he has a little thing that kind of sh- shows off the thing in action. And uh, it's just really neat, the, the kinds of stuff you can do with it. And then, like, it does, an, especially with um, uh, the add-on system, the package management system it has in it for doing plugins, for adding in plugins, um, it is fast enough, like, you, it adds on enough stuff for, like, code linting and things like that, that that's really useful. Um, so, uh, it's just, you know, it just works really well for me. But I can totally understand, like, in a situation like that, I think the, that latency you get, even if, even if it's, you know, saving your copy locally and you're doing an edit, 
you still have that latency of you have to save and wait for it to upload and then maybe test out your code, right? And it, so it's like there's this, it, you know, there's a latency there that's not very fun. Um, and I can Especially once you start getting really handy um, with doing everything via keyboard. Um, yep. So, like, I'll be working on something and I'll have a TMUX session going. And so I'll be editing the code in one window and then, uh, and then in another window or even if I split the window sometimes in, um, in Tmux where I have the command line, you get very adept at switching back and forth without, um, without touching the, in my case, the trackpad. So, right. uh, I mean, I, I, I tell developers, uh, newer ones that you should really invest time in like picking an editor and really learning how to use it inside and out. So you become super proficient with it. I really don't care what editor people use. I use Vim. I'm happy with it. I know people use Emacs. They're happy with it. Lots of people use Sublime Text and are happy with it. I went through my editor waffling phase like f- six years ago, maybe, and that's kind of when I said, okay, I'm going to... Vim's the thing I'm going to use. And muscle memory um, is crazy when you do a certain number of commands. I find myself at the point now with Vim um, that there are several things that I do in it that I just do uh, um, subconsciously without thinking, especially... With uh, especially doing things where I'm moving text around, I find I just do those things automatically now. I don't have to. I say to myself, "Okay, highlight that thing and and surround it with quotes," and I just kind of do it automatically and don't uh, don't think about it anymore, which is good. You know, it makes me. It started making me think about like what my history of editors has been. And um, oh, we could go down memory lane there. Yeah. Wow. So I. So think what was the, the first fir- one that you used then? Like the first. Well. I mean, there were a couple things here and there, but I think the first one that I used beyond something like Notepad, <laughs> right, uh, was probably um, HomeSite. HomeSite 3, Do you, if you guys remember that. Oh, I remember uh, it. HomeSite uh, was, um, I think, originally, it was done by a, a company, Alair, and I think there was a guy who worked... Uh, for a layer. Um, oh, actually, it was written by um, it was written by Bradbury Software, founded by Nick Bradbury, and I, he was the guy who wrote that. Nick Bradbury still does a lot of cool Windows stuff. I think he he wrote the he wrote Feed Demon, um, which is a a, a pretty good uh, newsreader for Windows. Um, so Bradbury wrote Home Site, um, and then uh, I. Let's see, uh, Alaire bought HomeSite. So Alaire is a software company. Um, and then Macromedia bought Alaire. And uh, Macromedia uh, bought Alaire really for Cold Fusion because Alaire had developed Cold oh, Fusion. Okay. And uh, so then they did, there was a HomeSite 4, I believe. I think I continued using that for a while. Uh, anyway, so after, but after HomeSite, I think I used. Uh, I think Dreamweaver had gotten far enough out of its like WYSIWYG editing thing where Dreamweaver actually had a pretty decent editor like engine in it. And uh, so I use that a lot. Now I was doing lots of HTML and CSS and some PHP. Uh, so even a lot of PHP, but that was back in the day where I was very much intermingling PHP and HTML and stuff like that and doing lots of stupid things that everybody tells you not to do now. Um, so I used Dreamweaver for many years, and then I think it was TextMate after that. 
Uh, I think he's TextMate. And uh, then I think we're up to Sublime Text. I think that was it. So, so for it, me, you know. I started off with... Um, oh, I forgot something. Oh, Can I mention you, this? Yeah, sure. This is an editor that a lot of people... I don't know if it's like... It, it seems to still be getting updated, which is... I mean, I was using it like 2001. But it's called um, HTML Kit. And I've, I'll I've the, heard of it. Never used it, but I've heard of it. But I mean, I was... And, and it was... I think I used it after HomeSite because I felt like HomeSite kind of wasn't going anywhere and it seemed like HTML kit was getting up to date. And this is, I mean, I was doing everything on Windows and you kind of had to work with that. Um, so HTML kit, uh, was a pretty, it was a pretty good tool for doing HTML in 2001. Um, and I, it, uh, I think the one, but it just didn't get updated for a long time. And I think it was, it, I ended up using in between HomeSite and Dreamweaver. It was HTML kit that I used. All right, so let's talk about my progression. So when I first started programming for money, I was using Linux. So I actually did Emacs as my first editor, believe it or not. So Emacs, then Eclipse, because Eclipse had really good subversion, uh, by, like subversion functionality to highlight and merge and handle all that stuff. It was actually quite awesome to use just as a subversion client. All right. So then after that, so yeah, so Emacs then, yeah, so Emacs, I'm trolling through my mind to remember. Emacs, Eclipse, then I got my first Mac, used BB Edit for a little bit, used SubEtha Edit. Remember that SubEtha Edit where you could do collaborative yeah. editing? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's, uh, it's still around. I, I, I don't know that they've been doing a bunch of updates on it, but I mean, you can yeah. still get it. So I used yeah. SubEtha Edit for a little bit, uh, um, I used Zen Studio. On Linux yeah, and I actually, on Mac? I actually used Zen Studio. Before Zen Studio switched to being Eclipse-based, yes, yes, I, used I actually think it was too. a really it was a really nice editor, and I, I think it kind of went in the toilet after um, that. But, yeah. yeah, so, so yeah, so Emacs, um, God, I got distracted. So Emacs, uh, Eclipse, tried Sabitha Edit, tried BB Edit, tried um, Zen Studio, um, then started using... TextMate, used TextMate for a while, then got into Vim, used Vim, flipped back and forth between Vim and TextMate for a bit, settled on Vim, now playing with um, Sublime Edit and uh, Sublime Text. And I've, every once in a while, I'll grab other editors and take a look just to see what people are talking about. I've seen PHP Storm, not a big fan, don't like it. Um, I've been looking at Lighttable because I contributed to the Kickstarter for Me that. too. They, so, I don't know if you saw. They just I did. They, yes, that's why I just, mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, they did a new version. Yeah, or was, I think it was actually out a few. Yeah, like they a have a weeks they have ago. a point three version of uh, Light Table. So maybe I'll try that out. But I think these days it's going to be Vim and um, Vim and Vim because I have to use Vim for work all the time, and so I don't like having to make the constant mental switch between. Um, Vim and Sublime Texture. Maybe if my work situation ever changes and I can actually work on things locally as opposed to remotely, then I will probably um, start using Sublime Text a lot more. I, I right. like Sublime Text a lot. I find when I, I find myself feeling comfortable when I use it, I don't find myself fighting it. I love the plugin and I love the management system. I love that they have kind of that super bar thing that you can just bring up and type shit in and it's smart enough to figure out what it is that you want to do. Um, 
Um, I like that. So, um, all right. So we've been talking about editors. So now that we have quite a crowd and they're busy talking to each other about what their different editors are. So let's open things up for questions. Who's going to be the first person to ask us a question in IRC? Yeah. Who gets to ask us a question? We're going to talk about it. This is funky and grumpy. Boing, 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 boing. We need the soundboard to make all these effects while we wait. Nice. Do we have a caller? Who's a 17th caller? Wins a prize to be berated forever on, in audio. Uh, Oh, I guess he's asking us. About okay. Yeah. This is from Livingston on IRC. You guys see the article about why PHP has reached its limit. So what does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. Doo-doo. I don't even know what this is. What the po- I don't understand what the point of this is. Oh, okay. So he's complaining, he's complaining about lack of, um, lack of built-in metaprogramming and reflection. Because being a okay, so this blog post is by someone who came to PHP from Ruby, which is insane because people usually go the other way. So he's talking about uh-huh. this, and he's look and he's looking at Flow, which I think is uh, is a CMS, and I would never look at CMSs for inspiration about code. So he complains about lack of metaprogramming in PHP, and although he talks about reflection, the guys on crack, you can do reflection in PHP five. Um, so he shows the typical example of, oh yes, I have all these doc blocks with annotations and then I can do it in two lines in Rails or adding in two lines for comments. So I guess, Ed, the question is, has PHP reached its limit because you can't do metaprogramming in PHP? No. No. I mean, it's, it's, look. No, next question. (laughs) Yeah, I, I... There's a lot of stuff I don't like about PHP. I mean, shoot. Um, Our first episode was about all the shit that we don't like about PHP. Yeah, but uh, for certain things, it's really useful. Um, I don't like its object model, and I think that people tend to um, try to make things overly complex in it. But the dude's comparing... He's not even comparing PHP and another language. He's comparing Flow and Rails. So I I don't know I don't I I I don't I'm not even as a as a quick aside even, to, as a quick yeah. aside to the whole thing about object stuff so I follow Ruby people on Twitter cuz some of them are sure. actually nice and don't laugh right in my face when I tell them that I do PHP stuff mostly uh some of them and yeah some of them well the, the better ones <laughs> the ones I've spoken to in person tend not to criticize PHP at least not openly uh, there's a guy who I follow on Twitter and has an interesting blog. And I think I brought him up before on one of the previous episodes. His name is Giles Boquette. And he wrote a really interesting ebook about Rails and object-oriented programming and all the kind of Rails-ism, all the things that Rails did that are not traditional object-oriented programming. And that, and that helped to explain why a lot of developers struggle to keep their Rails apps from getting totally out of control in terms of objects and stuff. Um, GilesBoquette.blogspot.com. In his sidebar, he has a link to his book called, it's called Rails as She Is Spoke. Um, I'm not a Rails guy. I'm not a Ruby guy. Um, but I, but people who, who do that sort of stuff, people who do Ruby first and kind of Rails second have said that the book is a really interesting look at how Rails handles the object model and all the things that all the things that Rails has twisted about objects in order to make things work. 
Yeah. So. So that is something people should read. Yes. Um, but has PHP reached the limit? Come on, bro. Clown question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the, I, it's a, that's like asking has C++ reached its limit? I don't, I don't know. A lot of people still use it. Is it exciting to get used in the sense that, like, it's a, it's a super new hot thing and tons of people are doing interesting little stuff in it? Uh, and why I say tons of people, I mean people who like playing with new tools all the time instead of getting shit done. Um, no, it's, it's not really, but you can do lots of good work in it and there's lots of good work to be done. That's kind of like saying, I don't know, has Pearl reached its limit? I don't know. Uh, lots know, of extremely I, interesting stuff with Pearl at Cinecore, and a lot of it makes me wish yeah. that. Oh yeah, lots of it, it makes me wish I'd paid attention when I uh, did a, a course in Pearl at school 15 years ago. Uh, all, uh, Pearl is a really all, cool language. Yeah, all I of mean, our tools yeah. that do the really heavy lifting for us at Cinecore are all written in Pearl. Right. All our tools to manage workflow, to merge code, to deploy things. I use this awesome stats package that we created internally that we're going to open source called DTK that can give me some crazy three-dimensional histograms from um, uh, analyzing cookies inside Apache um, log files. So mm-hmm. kids, if, if you believe that old languages can give you uh, an advantage when it comes to building something, just simply because if you look at something like Perl that has had so many things so many libraries and add-ons built for it, go learn some Perl. You will be absolutely amazed at what you can do with Perl. And I think really that Perl with JavaScript is probably not the worst, Is I think is no worse a combo to use than uh, PHP and JavaScript to build apps out. From what I've seen, we have done some super interesting things with Perl. I wish I knew more. It would make doing certain things at work a lot easier. Yeah, but I mean, it's one of, it's not a, it's not a, exciting popular language to use but there's lots of good people doing good work with Perl that's very interesting and uh so i you know it's it's great okay so uh, so yeah. so to summarize livingston's question no php is not reached its limit php will always be a web friendly language first and everything else is bolted onto it i feel like i need to have the horse graphic that says deal with it as the answer for this question. All right, next question. Yep. Monkey patching. We're not monkeys, we're developers. Yeah. Uh, except he talks like a... Uh, so, a Joel, yeah, so Ger- yeah. Joel Claremont, who, by the way, is giving the keynote at Midwest PHP on Saturday. They're letting him do it? I know. They didn't ask me to do it. I'm still hurting from that one. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so, Joel asks us, would PHP conferences be open to accepting a talk in a language like Erlang or Haskell? Uh, the, the answer is yes, some are and some aren't. I can only speak for myself uh, as a conference organizer that if I feel that a talk looks interesting that covers a language that is not PHP, I would definitely consider um, consider uh, running one. Why not? Limiting yourself yeah. just... I mean, you look at every single, uh, what I would say really, what I would classify as a really good PHP conference, has numerous talks about technologies that complement PHP. And I think that uh, teaching people how to do functional programming 
leads to better overall code because then people learn how to do things like map reduce and use all those awesome array manipulation functions that are inside the core of PHP. I know just myself from the little bit of functional program that I've done, I've been able to really flatten out a lot of really messy um, nested code simply by applying some um, functional programming concepts. And the big thing too is I've really worked hard on making sure that my methods have as few side effects as possible. I'm big on manipulating stuff and then passing the results on to somebody else to do something with it. And you know what I mean? Instead of like doing sideband stuff and uh, you know what I mean? I mean, I know from JavaScript, you can do a lot of kind of functional style programming in JavaScript. Yeah. Um, I think knowing how to do that stuff just makes you a better coder in languages that aren't fully, fun- fully um, functional, but let right. you use bits and pieces of it. Yeah, I uh, I guess you say so. I I think a lot of PHP conferences are open to that. Probably more so than say if you went to a Haskell conference and would they accept a talk on PHP? Probably not. No, no, they <laughs> uh, would. But a lot of PHP conferences do, and I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think the biggest reason is that. PHP in and of itself, it's really hard to just do PHP and not touch other things. Like, you are probably going to touch HTML, and you are probably going to touch JavaScript just because you're working on the web. Um, and there's a decent chance you're going to touch some other stuff, too. Uh, you know, some Python, some Ruby. And I, you know, I think, uh, so yeah, it's not, not, not unheard of. Um, I think that it's really useful to have things uh, like, you know, intros to other languages. And I have seen many of those at, at PHP conferences I've, I've been to and spoken at. So, um, I, if you were really hoping to speak and really, really want to go to this conference, um, I might not make that my only submission. Like you might want to make one that's sort of a little bit more of a straight up thing, but I, I think a lot of stuff like that gets picked up. Um, I know I've done a lot of JavaScript talks at PHP conferences, but I think that's a little, a little closer because I think uh, PHP and JavaScript, both being um, languages to build websites, um, are very complementary. So you end up uh, getting those a lot. Okay, so Joel, to answer your question, yes, go ahead and submit. The worst thing they're going to do is say no, or the, maybe the worst thing they're going to do is is ban you from attending a conference for making a joke about it being conference rejection day. All right, next question. <laughs> Yeah, that conference is going on right now. I heard that they uh, had some asshat do a security talk that had porn and strippers in it. So I'm quite impressed that they're willing to accept somebody like that but reject me. Anyway. Well, you know. What advice would you give to someone relatively new to open source as far as finding uh, finding projects? Do you mean projects they contribute to, I guess? Finding projects? Um, I don't know. Everybody has different motivations for wanting to do stuff. Right. Yeah, to contribute to. I don't know. There's a zillion. Pick pick one that's doing something that you think is interesting. I, I think I think any contribution that you can give to a project, even it's if it's as something as simple as <clears throat> excuse me, cleaning up documentation. I mean, how many open source projects have shitty, shitty documentation? Yeah, I think the first thing is that it if you should contribute to things you actually use. And the reason is because you're just a lot more likely to actually do it. Although sometimes you may, I mean, if you look at it in terms of just doing documentation stuff, sure. But sometimes you may actually lack the skills to actually make uh, what I would call a meaningful 
contribution to the project itself. Documentation is always good. But again, yeah. given the fact that people hate writing documentation, it takes a very rare person who's willing to sit down and do some documentation for a project. That, I, you know, I also found it, a lot of times there was, you know, when I've done stuff, I just wanted people to to even like, uh, just people who filed bugs clearly. <laughs> it's like, even if you just do that, I think that's an enormous contribution, right? Or, uh, you know, that, like a reproducible bug or things like that. Even those things are contributions, I think, because at least somebody's like, like, if you take the time to actually go about it the right way and, uh, you know, I think that helps a lot because most of the time you don't get good, um, you know, uh, uh, bug reports and it shows, it shows that somebody cares and I like that a lot. And then, um, I think from that, I think you can start doing, say, small things like it might be, uh, you know, yeah, documentation or writing tests or if this, this thing supports plugins, maybe writing simple plugins to do something that you find useful, uh, stuff of that nature. Um, I think you kind of start small, but there's a lot of areas where even if you're not like, you know, banging on the core code base, um, I think that stuff's really useful. I, uh, another thing that I always wish is even like really simple examples of how to use stuff. Um, like there's, there's a lot of times with projects I found there's, there's like decent high level slash API documentation, but there's not necessarily a lot of, okay, how do I actually use this to do something useful with it? And, um, some simple how to stuff that's like, okay, we're going to use it to, grab this, you know, piece of information and process it in some way or things like that. It does not have to be complex. Uh, those simple tutorial slash how-to things are really, really useful. And, uh, you know, doing that kind of stuff is, is, is super, super handy uh, for any project, I think. So we have another question um, queued up where... Um the Dragon Man Tank. And you have to say that all one word really quickly. Dragon Man Tank. Uh, he asks, do you think TDD and automated testing in general has become more accepted by the PHP community in the last year or two? Or is there still a lot of pushback? I think I have to... I, I don't think I can answer this one because I'm in it too deep. So, Ed, what, what do you think about that question? Uh, has it become more accepted? Yes. Do some people still not think that they don't have to do it sure but i'm not sure that's necessarily a php thing i think i think a lot of people don't test because they don't think about it or they don't they just don't know to do it um and it does take a while to sort of get so to that i point. so then i guess i have a question do you guys mm -hmm. at the greatest startup ever do automated testing um, no. yeah, like, like doing continuous integration kind of stuff, like running a test every time you commit things. No, like that. do you guys have automated tests that you run when you're building your, when you're working on your apps? Uh, not as many as we should, but yes, some. Okay. Mm -hmm. So do we have what I would call like a hundred percent coverage of our stuff? No, 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 no. Um, but, uh, for, I would say in most, like on the projects I work on, the things that are a little more static, like our API stuff and things like that, those things are actually tested pretty well. Um, the stuff that's doesn't that's not tested as well is really um, 
it tends to be front end code and particularly browser based stuff. Um, part of that is, is kind of comes up because I think you've talked about this a little bit that until like the UI settles down a little bit and you get out of this sort of prototyping stage, it's really hard to do. Like you can do some stuff where, and especially if you write your code the right way. Yeah, the spike and stabilize thing I talked about, right? Right, exactly. So there's stuff where it's like, okay, your things where you're just pushing data in and it's manipulating it and spitting it out. You can write tests for that kind of stuff pretty easily, right? But the things where it's where it's actually like interacting with a DOM, and you know it's running, it needs to run within the browser, and it needs to detect like, oh, okay, does this element exist in the DOM now that I ran this method or things like that? That stuff until things settle down and your markup is pretty stable and things like that, your CSS is pretty stable. Uh, that gets pretty hard to do because it's like you you spend so much time like you'd have to you'd just be rewriting tests all the time and i think it's kind of hard it's hard to do that like tests with that have to happen within the ui i think that's hard until it's that settled down um when that stabilizes uh you're kind of in better shape but it's true that um we don't do a good enough job at that um i think a lot of that also has to do with just the way that we've been working and the paces and stuff just, it feels like it hasn't allowed us to do it. It's kind of like, okay, we stabilized it and now we're deploying, right? <laughs> um, it's like now it's out the door and then wait, we've got to work on this next thing. So we don't really have time to go back and be like, well, I'm going to write a bunch of, I'm going to write even like, uh, you know, automated browser testing um, doesn't happen the way we'd like it to. Um, there's something to be said for, uh, having, like, when you have budgets and stability enough to, like, have the, uh, to not have to sort of constantly be scrambling, you can settle down and, and sort of make, have time to make stuff better. Um, but it's true that uh, I think for a lot of stuff, it's, you kind of have to establish that stuff at the beginning of the project. There's a lot of these practices. And then, so, like we just implemented, we I like on one project I just it, it, and it's it's already out there live, but I just got in some stuff using um, Mocha JS mm -hmm. uh, to do uh, testing in our JavaScript code. And so what I did was I just got up a simple test runner, and I'm just running it against like new stuff I'm running right now. I'm not going back and trying to put old stuff into it, um, but. Uh, it, certainly, there's a lot of stuff in there that we could have done better, and if I if I had had it in there from the start, probably would have written more tests. So uh, we do some, we just don't do as much as we should, for sure. That's what I figured. I mean, uh, see, one of the things too is, is that you kind of look at it and go, "Do it's it's this trap that you can end in sometimes where you're like, well, you guys have some really smart people working for you, so." Chances are your apps aren't too messed up and you are probably doing enough kind of informal ad hoc testing that no real showstoppers um, end oh, up that, live yeah, in not, production. That's not, that's not true at all. No, <laughs> that is ridiculous. And we have very good developers. No, constant bugs all the time. What you end up doing is you just you test them to see if the thing actually works. You know, I saw someone like, yeah, make, right. uh, I saw someone on Twitter uh, make a really uh, good comment about a uh, development style. So we do, a, we do Walmart driven development 
always doing rollbacks. <laughs> so, 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 um, so the too long didn't read answer to Dragon Man Tank's question is, is yes, people are paying more attention to testing. And I think people are also realizing, um, how difficult it is to write code that you can easily test. I think that's the thing that people don't understand is that realistically you have to change the way you write code to make it testable. And and so that's one of the things where you kind of want to do it from the start because it is a lot harder to go back and start applying those ideas that I'm thinking about testing with every piece of code that I write. Like, is this going to be testable or not? Da, 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 da. Um, it really helps you focus on making small modular code that you plug together. Yeah, and, I, I've been yeah. thinking. I've been thinking about a concept that I call patterns of testing legacy code. So I have right. some ideas about that. I don't know. Maybe that'll end up being the book I write in the winter of when I write, like in November of 2013. Um, I, I would love to read a book on that because it that's a, a real challenge. Um, yeah. All right. So let's get another let's get another question here. Come on, folks, queue one up, or else we're gonna or else we're gonna just drop the mic and walk off the stage. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. Well, I will. Yeah, somebody needs to uh, needs to ask a question. You know, uh, while we, while we wait for a uh, while we wait for a question, um, I will make a little five minute segue here where we talked. Uh, both you and I uh, had some extreme frustration um, with Twitter this week. Over, oh yeah, over mm-hmm. um, just I, I think both of us had an experience with the worst part of being active on social media, which is basically um, I w- I always like to think that I have the ability to see uh, things from other people's perspectives and then try to make a reasonable. Um, decision on various topics. Um, I I have discovered that there are, that I am in more often than not, I am taking the minority position on many, many topics. And by minority, I mean, uh, not that I'm feeling oppressed by the decisions that other people are making, but minority in that the, I am in the minority of people who feel a certain way about a particular topic. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's really, this it was interesting. This these past uh, say I don't know seven days on Twitter, I felt like the you know how like I always had good conversations about things like um like I wrote about like the micro PHP manifesto and stuff like that. Always had good conversations on Twitter. Consistently avoided say discussion of it on Hacker News and in like in the Reddit programming channels. And the reason I didn't is because I felt like the discussion quality was was just really a lot lower and people were a lot meaner and nasty and negative and not empathetic. And I think that uh, I felt like I got a pretty good taste of that sort of vibe on Twitter for the, for me, for kind of the first time I felt like, Um, maybe not the first time really, but it felt like it had been a long time and certainly within the PHP community was was definitely like that, um, amongst my developer uh, pals, um, and uh, it was kind of a bummer. Um, it was kind of a bummer to see folks who didn't. I didn't nec- you know. I, even they might make some decent points, but didn't seem uh, comf- didn't seem to want to acknowledge that uh, 
there were maybe some good points being made too, and it, and and uh, didn't want to sort of start think about it and say, well, maybe uh, maybe the reason why I'm rooting for this stuff, the, the you know certain side of this to work, and I'm excited about telling them they're doing awesome, is because it allows me to be comfortable and and still uh, uh, I, you know still kind of get away with the stuff I. I guess get away with. I, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. It's a long thing. I, you know. I don't know. I but uh, to, without getting into details, I think it really sucks. Uh, but uh, I, I'm going to say a bunch of you know dumb things instead of if we don't actually get into it. And but I think the point is, yeah, I was really bummed about that. Like lots of pithy um, uh, remarks. Uh, it it really got mean and um I, I and i guess i was surprised at the lack of respect particularly for a lot of folks who have done so much over many many years for open source and for php who really didn't get i think the benefit of the doubt that they maybe have some perspective and you know and privately I had a lot of people I know who are in that same boat, who have been around and, and, and doing this stuff for a long time, express to me how disappointed uh, they were and how everything went and how ugly and how uh, kind of nasty they got. And it was weird because I heard you know some people talking about how, well, hey, it was really great the PHP community can talk about this stuff and, and things like that. Actually, I... I don't think it went very well, to be no, honest. No, me neither. Uh, um, it, 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 people were rah-rahing a, a, a big supposed response on something that had, was, had a huge straw man, like poor logic, didn't address issues that were brought up, um, didn't seem to really consider all the things that people were mentioning and actively ignored stuff I know I brought up. It, publicly and in emails privately um <laughs> yeah i was bummed out by it it really turned me off yeah, it turned me off at twitter yeah. i'm i'm much less active on it <laughs> i'm much more active on app.net now suddenly because of that so yeah, yeah i will say that the thing that i found interesting was the number of people who were basically telling me to shut up but thought they were trying saying it to me in a nice way with little comments like stop fussing and what's the big deal well, um, and so my answer is always, yeah. I say, you know what the big deal? Fuck you. That's what the big deal is. Don't tell me to shut up because I say something you don't like. You want me to shut up. Uh, and, you know, I turn around and say when I tell people, uh, I'd love to hear from you why you don't think – let's talk about sexism real brief. That um, mm-hmm. I find I find it to be in, incredibly disrespectful when I say I don't think that dick jokes should be used to – push commercial usage of things. You want to wear a t-shirt with a dick joke. Uh, that's fine. But using it to promote a business, I think is like an incredibly poor taste. By the same yeah. time, it's like, you want to wear that? Okay, fine. Because this is the thing. I tweeted this several times. Um, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. And I think people always, yeah. people confuse those two things and people think that because they can say whatever they want, you're not allowed to criticize people for what they've said. So let's, so yeah, both, both you and I, I, I know that I'm going to pull back from um, Twitter a little bit, uh, just simply because um, I'll probably end up like punching somebody in real life 
that I meet at a conference over something that they've said, yeah. over something that they've said yeah. to me um, on Twitter, simply because um, I am not willing at all to put up with people um, disrespecting me by telling me to stop fussing and to shut up. I don't, well, I don't, here, I don't here, tell people, yeah. I don't tell people to shut up about the things that they want to talk about. So they should not be telling me to shut up. Right. Here's yeah. Here's the thing. There's a big difference between saying, "Hey, I don't agree with you," and I think you're wrong, and telling you that you are uh, that your feelings aren't valid and you just need to get over it. That is so dismissive that I I I, I I'm just shocked at the lack of empathy shown. But I I guess I, I kind of expected better. I guess, uh, but it's not, I, I mean, I can't say that it's not like I don't see that every day. I just thought that the groups of folks that we dealt with were kind of better, but, um, I don't know, man. I, ju- I just expected a lot better. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm not going to, I think everybody has to make their choices about when, the, if they want to publicly talk about this stuff, but a lot of people who I've known in the PHP community for a long time just expressed to me privately how disappointed and bummed they were and how they didn't want to talk about this even though they felt like they were really disappointed and upset about how all this had gone I didn't want to say anything because they just didn't want to get involved because it seemed so toxic and that that really sucked and I don't think that I don't think that got better I don't think people tried to heal anything and I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any efforts to to bring people in the fold or reach out or try to learn from this. So it is what it is. Anyway, we had another question. I think somebody asked something about uh, who's next. If we've ever read the Steve um, Yeg on liberal versus uh, versus uh, conservative in programming, I read that blog post when it came out back in I don't know two thousand six or two thousand seven. Thought it was horseshit. There's no such thing as liberal programmers and conservative programmers. It's a dumb, it's a dumb topic, and it's just Steve Yeg rambling on and on about shit that he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Another question, please. Oh, <laughs> someone asks about working from home, good or bad. Oh, uh, what a tangled web we weave when we talk about that's, when we, when we yeah. talk about remote working. Okay, so that's and that's different. That there's a, I I will say there's a difference between remote working and working at home because I remote work, but I try not to work at home. So I just say I'd say there's a distinction. I work at home because I can't stand working with other people. That's why I want to work from home. I hate cubicle world. I hate it. That's why I work from home. I'm, I was so sick of all the stupid horseshit, the distractions, the idle chit chat, the uh, drive-bys by management. Uh, all that stuff has disappeared since I got jobs where I work um, from home. So let's talk about, so here I, I will talk about the real issue that I have with Yahoo. Yahoo is, has decided that innovation can only have happen when you are keeping all your people captive by bribing them with food and shuttle runs from, uh, wherever you live, uh, to where the offices are. And apparently one of the metrics that Yahoo decided to use to decide that their, um, remote workers weren't working and you can see me doing air quotes hard enough was the amount of VPN traffic. Well, let me clue. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. That's what they used. So here's the thing that I will tell people when I'm at home, I have my work computer. I do all my work stuff on my work computer. When I need to do something personal, like check a personal email, say something on Twitter, I do it on a device that I own myself 
that is not connected to the VPN at work. So if you were to judge, so I could do all the stupid shit that I do on the work computer and would be like, oh, look at all the traffic flowing back and forth. Chris is a super productive worker. No, I do my work stuff on my work computer. I do my personal stuff on my, on my personal devices. Uh, usually the, usually the iPad is propped up next to me. Um, I, I mean, the idea that innovation only happens when you have a bunch of people in a room together, I feel is absolute nonsense. And it's all about trust, where Yahoo has decided that they cannot trust their workers, so they want them all in one place where they can keep an eye on them. And I really well, think yeah. it's as simple as that. It's trust. When you have trust, your workers can work from anywhere and keep whatever schedule that they want. When you don't trust, you end up with the attitude that sitting in a seat in a cubicle or even in a nice office with a door that you can close matters more than trust. Yeah, I think... I will I'll freely say I think that some people do well working remotely, some people don't. Um and that and that just varies. I I think I read a good article and uh, well at least I agreed with it. A lot of people say that it's a good that something is good when it just means that they agree with it and really in this case it just means I agreed with it. Um that uh that that a manager uh, needs to do whatever he can to help his, uh, the people he's managing be productive. For some people, they're going to be productive in different environments. Uh, and, you know, that varies. It also varies, you know, the kind of people you, you want to hire based on your commitment to doing remote work or your commitment to having everybody in an office or this or that, whatever. Um, I'll say in my experience, I think that, uh, what is it? I think Sean Coates said this, uh, that talent trumps geography. And if you want the best people, you need to be willing to let them work from where they are as opposed to trying to get them to move to where you are. Um, I like living where I live, and uh, I in no way in hell want to move to the Bay Area. Uh, where houses cost 30 times as much and um, my salary would go almost nowhere. Uh, here, I can actually own a nice home and, you know, have a good life for my family. Um, that uh, means a lot to me, and uh, I like living here, and I can still be very productive and get a lot done. Um, I get more done <laughs> working remotely now than... I know I did when I worked on campus here at Purdue University, uh, and I, I, I think that's because of a lot of factors, but it's not like, uh, you know, an office is some magical panacea where you get shit done. It, I mean, that's ridiculous. I, I think you can screw off just as much or more. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't buy it. I mean, maybe they've got good reasons for it, but it sounds if if it's based on stuff like VPN traffic, I just don't. You know, that sounds like the kinds of things where they're basing your productivity on like how many lines of code you wrote. I mean, <laughs> the, the, and we know that metric is broken. So uh, if that's the kind of stuff they were using, oh, well, that sucks. And it sucks to be those guys. I guess the thing that bugs me is that I could even understand having a. Uh, Having a company that was primarily focused on, you know, having people on campus, you know, having people on location, and that's fine. But you're always going to have some folks who are, have circumstances 
where they really need that flexibility for one reason or another. Uh, it might be family reasons. It might be that you just want to have this person here and they have health things, or maybe they live a little bit far away and it would be nice if they didn't have to come in one or two days a week. And the impression I had is that Yahoo was like, no, no, you need to come in. You're not, it's not even like you can, you know, you can telecommute one or two days a week. You need to come in every day. Well, at that point, if they're not giving themselves the flexibility to work stuff out with people, then I think they're just shooting themselves in the foot. And that seems real stupid. Which is kind of a bummer because it seemed like maybe they were doing some stuff a little better. But, uh, this, this is the, you know, I don't know, man. I don't run the company and I, I'm not a person who would run a company and you should not ask me to. So I don't really know why they did it, but. I don't think it's a good idea to just make it a huge policy that you have to be in the office, you know, five days a week. Yeah. All right. So let's on the same sort of topic uh, in the chat channel uh, where I just blithely dismiss Steve Yeggs ideas. Um, someone asked Book me about going. the Paul Graham uh, essay, and that's in air quotes as well, uh, about the maker's schedule. And so my initial answer to the thing about the maker's schedule was um, horseshit written by a rich white man. <laughs> uh, but more importantly, I think that – so the for those who don't want to be bothered reading it and want to hear the Grumpy Programmer's version of it, let me lay it down for you. So mm-hmm. he says that there are two types of schedules. There is the uh, schedule of, of those who need to manage people and the schedule of the maker. And again, I'm doing lots of air quotes today. And the mm-hmm. idea that the schedule of people that need to do meetings – uh, does not work with the schedule of people who want to just be left alone to build things. But here's the horseshit part of it. He talks about innovation all the time. The maker schedule where nobody is supposed to come and bug you about anything so you can concentrate on your work is not conducive to innovation. To, to truly innovate, that means everyone has to be available at a moment's notice to talk about something. So that when you have some brilliant idea of how you will turn um, pictures of kittens into a uh, Ferrari Testarossa for you and your buddy, you have to be able to talk to that person instantly. So the idea of the maker schedule is works if you have one person working on one task. If you have multiple people who need to collaborate on tasks, you cannot have you cannot have policies that encourage people to isolate themselves and stop responding to outside requests. That is the problem I had with that essay when I first read it three years ago, and that's a problem I have with it now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think he's right that you can't be, that, you know, certain kinds of people and certain kinds of work can't get done if you're constantly in meetings. But at the same time, I am, you know, I work pretty in lockstep with, uh, uh, my friend Bedrich, who is a uh, designer slash some programmer, like front-end programmer at Fictive Kin. And while we are programming, I am, you know, pinging him, every, you know, quite a bit. Like, you know, several times in an hour saying, hey, I'm about to push this commit up. Hey, take a look at this code. Could you review this and merge this in for me? Uh, we're constantly talking now there will be some times where we say it's I where you know a task is going to take several hours and really it's like look I can't I I can't get distracted Um, I need to stick my head down and plow through this and it's going to take a while so we'll go on you know we call it blackout where it's like okay I'm I'm stepping away from IRC 
and we I'm not going to be available unless it's an emergency. And if it's an emergency, you can, you know, text us or, you know, call on the phone if it's a real emergency or whatever. Yes, I like that approach too. But in general, if you're working, you leave yourself on IRC. And so we, you know, we just have habits. It's like, hey, if somebody, if somebody's here, if you're logged in on the channel, that means that you are available. And if you, for some reason, you need to be not available, you need to say, I'm not available. I'm signing off now. And you could leave messages. Like we have a bot that's, you know, you can leave messages for each other so that when a person signs on to the server and says anything in any of our channels, it'll automatically spit out the messages to them. Right. Yep. So. We found that that stuff works pretty well, but I mean, we established that after two or, you know, a couple of years of doing this, but no, I think it's the case that even working remotely, I, you know, I'll have two or three, like short, like five or 10 minute Skype calls or Google Hangouts every day because we're like, Hey, we need to actually talk this out. Like, okay, what am I doing this? Burp, 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 burp. Okay, yeah, all right, now we know what we need to do, kick it back. But And then constantly, like, saying, hey, take a look at this commit. I'm going to do this, you do this part, da, da, da. So we're doing that all the time. I don't. So maybe different kinds of work is like that. Like, I could see maybe different kinds of programming is like, hey, I've got to plow through this huge algorithm. But with web stuff, at least, where it's not really about the algorithms, it's about the how do all these pieces fit together. Um. I, we're constantly working with each other, but you're not doing things where you're like, okay, we're going to block out an hour of meeting time. Yeah. It's not like that, but you are still constantly in touch. You don't, you don't cut yourself off and wall yourself off from people. So part of, you have to understand too, part of the thing why I don't like Paul Graham is because I do not like the cult of the startup. And I think a lot of the stuff that he promotes is just complete nonsense. Um, that is self-serving because he's a wealthy man who can invest in other businesses and he has enough money that he can afford to throw uh, thousands of dollars away on someone else's bad idea. Um, startup worship, I think, is destroying the tech industry. I think it really is. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's why you have to understand, you have to filter everything Paul Graham says through a filter that says, what is it that Paul Graham does for a living? Then once you look at that, then a lot of the things that he says um, are completely self-serving. And, uh, and all his comments really just are a vehicle for him to keep promoting um, his his um, his idea that startups are everything and that you should. Ugh, I hate startups. <laughs> no, no, actually, that's incorrect. I don't hate startups. I hate the um, we're going to change the world startup mentality. I hate the um, we have we. Um, I believe that when you build something, you should be charging money for for it from day one, and that you don't. You don't always have to come up with a billion dollar Instagram exit. But again, like I said earlier, I am in the minority uh, opinion on this just simply because um, people are delusional and they th they always think that their their little startup, their little idea is going to be the thing that has them rolling in mad, mad money when I'm able to roll in pretty decent money um, just by working on my own stuff and, and charging money for pretty much everything that I do. So... I don't like Paul Graham at all. Yeah, I, I, I'm very much on. I'm very cynical of this. I guess you'd say cult of startup stuff. And uh, I don't know. Like I said, I think there were some aspects of that. Like you said at the beginning, I, I kind of dug with that. But I, I don't. I, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't fit what works for for me and and us as a 
as a group effective kin, but you know, that's all I can well, say. Well, you know, Ed, I will say I will say that fictive kin sounds like the type of startup that is approaching things the way that I would want to approach things if I was an integral part of a startup. From what I've seen, from what we've yeah. talked about um, privately, um, I think the the fictive kin model of a startup is one that more places should emulate rather than the uh, I'm creating a business with the hopes of Google or Facebook buying me, which is just oh yeah, yeah, we're pretty different from that. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to change um, the world. No, you're fucking not. You know who's <laughs> you know who's changing the world? Let's talk about some ego-driven stuff. You know who's changing the world? People like me that are promoting people to write better code. That's changing the world more than any other fucking startup will ever do. All right, let's go. Let's find another question. Well, uh, Livingston had a question. Where? He, he asked about – it was a little bit back at 10.06. He said, any, any thoughts on how to properly respond to the question, quote, how long will huge, massive project take? Okay, I'll tell you how I estimate things. So I sit down and I figure out how long I think it would take me to do it. Then I double that time, and then I push it up to the next, uh, the next point on the time progression scale, where the time progression scale starts off seconds, minutes, hours, days. So if I think something's going to take me four hours to do, I will double it to eight, and I say it will take me eight days to get it all completely done start to finish. And I'm usually right because there are so many impediments. If you're doing it, if you're the only one doing it yourself, your schedule can be very accurately accurate. Once you have to involve other people, you might as well just make numbers up. You might as well say, I think it's going to take me blue days to get done. Yeah, I think particularly if it, it it's it's one thing when it's stuff that's like, yes, I'm going to do all of this work myself. If it starts involving other people, <laughs> um that uh and it's like well i'm gonna have to rely on this person to do this part of it um that gets a lot harder because now you've got to coordinate people and you got to hope that you know they're they're able to do it on the same time schedule you've got to do stuff yeah all 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 joking aside estimation is really difficult to do i don't think anyone does a really good job uh, as a programmer on estimating because usually the problem is delays happen because there are things that we don't know needed to be done and uh and that's all it really is. That's how schedules slip because stuff happens that you didn't know needed to be done. And that, and that has to get done in addition to all the other work that you've committed to doing. So I'm sorry. I don't have any, um, I don't have any easy answers. Um, I, isn't, isn't your approach basically what, um, Spock did in Rathacon? No, that's what, uh, no, that's what Scotty does where Scotty always lies about how long it takes him to fix something. No, 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 no. Remember when uh, Spock was talking to Khan. Well, hold, hold up. To, hold to up. I, I, I'm going to drop some, uh, some nerd points here, but I've oh, never sure. seen Wrath of Khan all the way through. So what is wrong with you? Oh, you should watch that movie. I should. Anyway, there's this thing where he's, it, it's it, like it, when I was a kid, I was like, wow, he's peeking to him in code, but you're not, but it's, it's really obvious now. Um, Anyway, so Spock has to talk uh, to Kirk. Kirk is inside the Genesis um, cave, yep. like stuff about and, to scream Khan at uh, an incredibly high volume. Yeah, yep. And Spock is back on the ship, and they know that Khan can probably hear their radio transmissions. So Spock says, um, "If we go by the book, oh, and now I think I've seen that. Yes, no, no, I. No. It would take us." It'll take 17 days for us to get power, or like 17 hours or something, for us to get impulse power back. And it'll take, you know, three days to get warp drives back or something like that. And really, it was like, 
he he meant hours, right? Yeah. So that's basically uh, that was a, a long way of ruining that joke. Um. Anyway, uh, what do I think about that? When do you you know? You're estimating stuff. I think the the key thing is you talked about this big, long, huge project. It is impossible to even get close to it without breaking it into small pieces. Yes, the- you just have to. There's just no way. So you cannot be like, how do you build big website? That You might as well just ask that. And unless you get into all the details of it, it you cannot make an estimate on it. So I think that it's a good idea to take an estimate of how long... <laughs> Uh, you think it would take you to do it and probably double it. I would at least do that. And that's usually when I'm the only one who's working on it. Yeah, right? You can do that um, one or you can do the, uh, what I call the metric conversion, uh, idea where you double it and add 30. And by that, I usually mean double it and then add half a right. unit of time. So if you decide, right. or so if you decide that actually works pretty good for me when I look at a task and then, and then that covers me for, usually writing the test and other things. So if something's four hours, four and four, that's eight at a half hour, eight and a half hours to complete a task. And usually, unless something really weird has happened, I get everything done in under eight and a half hours. Right. It's like, it's like somebody says, how do you, I need, I want a car, build me a car. How long would that take? Well, there's a lot of things. Do you want a, I'm going to use uh, imaginary air quotes. Well, I'm doing them in real life, but you can't see them. A car that's basically like a cardboard box with like a, a you know, wrapped around a, a tricycle, like a child's tricycle. That's called a minimum viable car. Right. That is your minimum viable Another car, Another startup right? thing I fucking hate. Keep going, Ed. So you could, if you could spec that out, and, pr- and a lot of times what I do is I say, well, client, here's what I would do. You could do this, and this is going to get you from A to B, and it's going to be this, and I think it would probably take this long to do it. And that's going to get you this. And this is what you're going to be able to do with it. And if you want to do this, then that's going to cost more, right? That's going to take more time, and I haven't sat down and figured that out. If you want something you don't have to pedal, then it's going to take this because I'm going to have to build this little, you know, I'm going to have to go buy an engine and hook it up to it and stuff like that. I think you have to break it down into, you you essentially mentally have to map out what it's going to, you know, what it's going to be made of. And based on that, you say, okay, it's going to be this, how will, how long will it take me to build, you know, this part? And how long will it take me to build this part? And how long will it take me to build this part? And how long will it take me to build this part? And you have to build in time, especially the, if it comes down to the design, you're going to have to build in extra time for like back and forth and the fact that they're probably going to reject you two times. So you have to just like double or triple your time on stuff like that. Um, but you have to break them down into small segments um, and then say, okay, you throw it all together. You're going to have a car of sorts and it will do what you're trying to do. And this is how much uh, it would, it, these are the hours I think it would take. My, and my policy is when I, you know, doing, uh, if I do freelance work is that uh, I say, it's not going to take more than this. If I think it at some point while we're going on that it's suddenly going to take more than that, I will stop work immediately and I will tell you. So I'm going to say, okay, I'm putting the brakes on here, doing that. If you want to do what you just said, it's going to add 
time to this. And, uh, I think that helps a lot because the, the key thing is then you can come up with some, a basic estimate, but you really just bill them out on hourly hours and it, you, but you give them a high enough estimate where you're not going to go over that. Um, and then, uh, but you still have that room where it's like, okay, I'm going to build up. If I say that the ceiling's at five grand, if I think that my hours are going to take me over that, well, then I'm going to stop work and I'm going to tell you. And that's how, you know, it, I think that helps because I think it, 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 it gives them some feeling of trust that, well, I know it's not going to cost more than this. Right. But you, you, I mean, all of these, all of these jobs you run into, you're always going to run into something that's going to take longer than you expect. It's like specking out, yeah, I think it's going to take this to fix your car. Well, and you're kind of guessing, right? So you might get it in there and then, I don't know, you stick your hand into the engine and it like, you know, falls apart, you know, into dust, you know, oh shit. Well, it's going to take more, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think you, you got to break it down and, you, and with working with clients, you just got to give them ceilings. And you be real straightforward with them and say, this is what I think it's going to take. And if it takes more than that, I will immediately stop. You know, you just so you, just so you know that you have their interests in mind. Uh, and I usually that's worked well for me. Just told people in the chat we're going to do two more questions and then we're going to be done because that's going to get us close to uh, 90 minutes, which is a normal oh, God, Dev Hell yeah. podcast. Yeah, normal, thing to me. All right. So we right. were asked by uh, Raphael Domes, who I can't believe got allowed into Canada. Um, for Confu. Um, he says, do I dare ask what you guys think of the we need to hear the users discussion in PHP internals? I cannot think of a single programming language that takes the complaints of the workaday user seriously. Can't think, can't think of one. No, I'm, being, no. I'm being serious. Ruby, do Ruby people bend over backwards to change things because uh, workaday programmers ask for something? Does Guido and the boys at Python um, bend over backwards to uh, accommodate uh, workaday programmers? Um, are the JavaScript folks doing the same thing? I think the answer is no. I, th I mean, that's the quite. I mean, people are saying yes. We want features because I want a feature because I want it. I mean, that's what I see a lot in the PHP discussions. I don't read internals because I have enough rage in my life already. And on top of it, my C skills are nowhere near enough to actually code to code extensions or suggest patches or whatever. So, yeah, sorry, Raphael. I think the bottom line is the people who actually write PHP, who write the C code, write the core, they don't care what the users want. And, um, that's the way it is because while it's not a democracy, it is sort of a democracy. It's a democracy amongst people who can actually write code and critique other people's code that would go into PHP. I mean, uh, if you look at one positive example recently, I think is the fact that Zend open sourced the optimizer, the opcode optimizer, and it looks like it's going to be part of PHP 5.5. So um, that's a that's a that's a good example of something from outside being pulled into PHP. But for the most part, the voice of the workaday user is might as well just be incoherent screaming for all the good that it does. I think it's really tough with PHP because you've got so many people who use it and use it in different ways and different 
scopes. And when I say scopes, I, get, I don't know, scales really maybe is the word I'm looking for. Um, that you've got, I mean, think about the way that, that uh, Brian Moon at Deal News uses PHP. And then think about uh, like your average, like, like say a large scale symphony project. I mean, they're, they, they are coming at it in different ways and their needs are different. And, but I think they're both just as valid. And the language just, it's, it serves a lot of different people. And you have to, uh, you know, I would imagine it is very difficult to do stuff that, um, uh, you know, when you're listening to the user, you have to listen to all the users. And, um, I think you're rarely going to get a, uh, singular answer. So I, I think it's pretty, it's, it would be pretty, uh, difficult to do that. Now, the other side of it is that, you know, PHP has always been organic and anarchic in nature and the way that it's, it's developed and, and that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I, I like other languages for different reasons, and uh, I like that they don't change as much. I mean, but but PHP is what it is, and uh, I hope it you know keeps going and and they listen to stuff and things. But like the stuff that I would change in PHP would like fundamentally change the language, like that would make me happier. But you know, you're better off just using a different language, right? Yeah, I mean, that's not like, going to happen. I just I think the point I'm trying to make is that the People who actually build PHP, they have no vest. They really have. How can I? What's the best way I can put this? There's no need for them to listen to the users. There really isn't. They have the skills. They can push the language in the direction that they want it to go, and they don't need. They don't need support from the users of the language in order to implement the things that they think are important. So I think that's really. I think that's really my point. PHP, yeah, I can see that. You know what I mean? It's like they don't, they have, there's no bet, they don't gain anything by constantly listening to user input. Uh, in many cases, having a benevolent dictator for a language works because that person has a vision on what they want to get done. And then everything that gets done is based out of the vision of the core contributors. It's nice that people can request things get done, but in the end, if the the way things are set up, if if a supermajority does not vote for something to be done, it's not going to get done. I don't read internals because of this exact bullshit. Well, I don't want to waste any. I don't want to waste any time trying to convince the trying to convince uh, people who do core stuff to implement the things that I want to see. Because me, I'm the type of person that doesn't fight with their tools. If I can't do something with a specific tool, I'll go and use something else rather than sit there and moan that PHP doesn't support my little pet feature that I want. That's that's my approach. I refuse to fight with my tools. When a tool tries to fight with me, I kick it in the nuts and I push it aside and I use something else that's a better fit for the task I'm trying to do. All right, one more question. Uh, one more question or else we're just going to drop the mic. While we're waiting for one more question, I was going to add one more little thing. Sure, that One thing that has that's, this was different and surprised me about... Um, don't make it a question about style guides. I just don't care. Um, and I just don't find it interesting to talk about. Um, I think style guides are important to a project. Uh, I, I'm not interested in it otherwise. Um, 
one thing I thought was interesting was that a lot of like Python core stuff, like things that sit in the standard library with Python, uh, that stuff's actually written in Python. And I think that's interesting in that that is not, as far as I know, the case with any PHP stuff, I don't think. Like, it's all written, like, the stuff that ships with PHP, I mean, so I'm not talking about stuff like Pear or something like that, but all the stuff that ships with the language, that's the standard PHP library is all written in C. That might make, that probably makes a bit of a difference in terms of the accessibility of the language. Like, if you want to contribute and change PHP or say change the standard libraries, you must be able to write C. Um, and write C for, you know, for the PHP internals. Um, whereas that is, that, I was surprised and it is different in, in, in Python. And maybe that's because Python has that compilation step in it where the speed is less of an issue. Uh, or that, that bytecode compilation thing. Yes, a good question. Please make it a good question. Talks. I think people should go see a Tech 13. I don't know all the talks. I don't know all the people. If you're going to ask me, I say, come and see my other talks. Come and watch me and Ed do the live dev hell and then go sit in the lobby for all the rest of the sessions. Come on. Give us a real question, people. Why am I not I a know, oh, oh, Raphael asks why I'm not a Kung Fu. Wow, that's a really yeah, good question. I don't, I don't even Next think question. we should get into that. One yeah. more. Um, I, I, I think that... Um, uh, hang on just a sec. Oh, I was going to say style guides. You know, the funny thing is I'm not a big fan of style guides, but I'll tell you, starting off with uh, in Sublime Text and writing PHP or Python in that and having a a very strict PEP8 style like validator running all the time in it has made me very, I, I immediately write very, very clean code because of that. Awesome. Um, what, what did he ask me about that? Uh, do you have a few to PM? What's PM? Private message. Uh, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, yes, I can talk to you about it. Um, we're, there's a, a conference called Open West that's in Utah, an open source conference, and I was talking about maybe speaking there. Oh, and doing your, um, mental your, open your crazy source. Person. Yeah, your crazy yeah. person talk. Cool. Yeah. You've got to be mental to be in this. Uh, sorry. <laughs> You know, I don't think anyone is willing to give us a valid question, so I think we're done. Oh, hey, the, no, there's a, let's see, some of these might be good. Do you research that question? WebOS versus Firefox, WebOS versus Ubuntu. Can people I not can read you, what I'm typing in all caps in the channel? Valid question. Yeah, ask a good question. Come on now, guys. Uh, what? Uh, uh, I think all of those OSs, WebOS, Firefox, OS, and Ubuntu, are interesting. Um, I heard WebOS is going to be running on LG televisions. How do you think about that I, as its final grave? Jesus, I I don't even, <laughs> I, do I do I think that will? I, I'll be honest, and it kind of bumps me out because I've got friends who who work and they're now they're going to be working for LG, and but um, so I guess for my friend's sake and stuff like that, I would say I hope it goes very well and that they put it on the TVs and it works great. I don't even understand what the advantage of using WebOS for that uh, on that kind of a screen is like. I mean, the the WebOS, the, the all the UI stuff was designed to be touched, and I don't want to touch my TV and get stuff on it. Why would I want that? So I I I don't see. I I 
I don't see any advantage to it. I, I don't understand why they wouldn't do it. Literally, I don't see why they would choose WebOS over something like Firefox OS or anything else that you could build stuff. If you just want to build stuff in HTML5, you could do that with lots of stuff. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay, so we have a, uh, a last real question. Kind of. Uh, from yeah. one of my uh, apprentices, since I do the mentoring thing. Oh, Jeff Caruth. Yes, yes. In your opinion, what separates a junior from a <laughs> <laughs> I think, actually, I think Joel just answered that question. That was what, the best what, answer. What, what, all right. That's a definite, that's a definite mic drop. I don't, I don't think I can top. I was going to, yeah, I don't, I, I was going to, yeah, no, I can't top that. I think that's good. <laughs> and with that, we're done, I think. This has been episode number 29 of the Development Hell Podcast. Thanks well, thanks so much to everyone for showing up in IRC to ask us some questions, some of them actually good, some of them not so good. In fact, most of them not so good. Terrible. Terrible You guys questions. need to try a lot harder. Man, I hope the live show goes <laughs> – I hope the live show in May goes a lot better or else, man. We're going to be just throwing bottles at the crowd. Um, yeah. So as always, you can find us uh, on devhell.info. You can find every single episode we've ever done done is up there. You can listen to everything. Uh, I know I go back once in a while whenever I'm feeling like I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I go listen to myself talk and think, yes, Chris, you actually do know what you're doing. Uh, we're also available via iTunes. Please, please, please go and rate us on iTunes. It helps uh, helps us out to figure out whether people are enjoying the things that we're doing. Uh, you can Ooh. find us on Twitter. There's a dev underscore hell Twitter account. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed on Twitter as Funkatron with a U. Thank you very much and- to uh, Birthday Boy, Paul Reinheimer and the uh, Wonder Network for providing us with the bandwidth to do the streaming uh, of of this uh, particular recording, and uh, we will all talk to you guys soon. Hey, I've got two more oh. things to say. We're both on App.net. Yes, we're both on uh, App.net. So come on App.net and harass us there too. Yeah, uh, same. And, hand- um, I'm on the same. I have the same handle on AppNet as well as I do as I have on um, on the Twitters. And I would never encourage people to just uh, click on ads for the sake of it. But if you go to our website and you find things that are uh, useful or interesting in some of the uh, the sponsors that we've got on there, if you do click, that does help us out and keep the show running. So it really would help us if you if you if you check out the website devhell.info and uh, if you like what the sponsors you know, are doing there, check them out. All right, good night, everybody.